0: and Hancock Counties with news, information, ideas, events, goods, and services on newsstands Thursdays and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com.
1: Hi, Darwin Davidson here. Brownsmount is on a bluegrass roll heading into our 30th anniversary year. And the guy who started Bronzewound back in 1988 is back in the Bluegrass Hot Seat this week. Paul Anderson was the founder of Bronzewound in 1988, and he will be the Bronzewound host this coming Thursday, April 5th. And it'll all be right here on Community Radio, WERU FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. So be sure to tune in on Thursday, April 5th from 8 to 10 p.m. for Paul's Always Great Choices of Great Bluegrass Music. I'll be listening, and I hope you will be too. See you on the radio. WERU is made possible by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you.
2: And we are WERU 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and all over the place at WERU.org. Don't forget, we are listener supported. Hint, hint. <laughs> volunteer powered and a voice of many voices stay with us we're going to be going to main currents in just a second let me take you, give you a quick look at the weather sunny today with a high near 35 west winds around 18 with gusts as high as 33 we're, tonight we're looking at mostly clear with a low around 18 tomorrow rain likely mainly after 5 p.m. increasing clouds with a high near 40 stay tuned for main currents
3: And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. We are here in a new time slot starting this week. We are no longer going to be on Tuesdays at 4 o'clock. Instead, we're going to be on from now on on Thursdays, the first Thursday of each month from 10 to 11 o'clock. John Greenman is our, still our engineer, and uh, we'll still be trying to do call-in segments on most of our shows. Today, we've squeezed in a time-sensitive topic into the first 20 minutes of the show because that's all we have time for, although it warrants a lot more time and consideration. Uh, we'll have the phone lines open during that 20-minute discussion, and then we're going to be shifting gears. So if you have a question or a comment on this first topic, don't hold off too long on calling in because you won't be able to after uh, 10-20. This is a topic that a lot of people do have an opinion about, the salmon aquaculture facility that's being proposed in Belfast. Last week on Main Currents, we took a look at some of the questions people had about the facility proposed for Bucksport. Today, we're looking at Belfast, and we're joined by some local residents who have concerns and are up against a deadline which is why we've squeezed this in today. As listeners may uh, be aware, a company from Norway, Nordic Aquafarms, wants to build an indoor recirculating aquaculture facility in Belfast where fish would be raised from eggs. It would cost somewhere between $150 and $500 million. The proposed site is partly on... Uh, proposed to be sited on land that is owned by the town's water district and rezoning is required that's what the deadline piece is about so here to tell us more about that and the concerns that some local residents have are belfast resident joanne Mosswild and belfast resident and business owner ellie daniels and i'm going to basically turn it over to them and to you if you want to join the discussion at 4690500 for the next 20 minutes again 4690500 you can call with questions and comments during this First 20 minute segment. We're going to start with Joanne Mosswell with some background. Hi, thanks for having us on the show. Thanks for joining me. Um, I'd like to just share
4: the timeline uh, for this project so far. Um, First of all, in January, um, a press release came out in the newspaper, great surprise to everyone in Belfast, um, that Nordic Aqua Farms was uh, in possession of a purchase and sale agreement for 40 acres. Of pristine land currently not zoned for industry. Uh, uh, Sometime in February, they had a public information session, which was a pretty big sales pitch uh, at the Hutchinson Center, which was packed with people, lots of good questions, some in support, some not in support, and lots of questions that the um, company was not really able to answer. Uh, On March 6th, uh, there was an introductory reading of the required zoning changes that the council has to put into place to allow this company to come and do what they want to do. That was an introductory reading. Um, there were a lot of people there. There were, uh, I think, maybe four people spoke out uh, against this at the council meeting. Um, then on March 20th, there was the first official reading of the count, the proposed zoning changes. Uh, at that meeting, 10 people spoke out against this proposal. Uh, for a variety of reasons, um, and then uh, on April seventeenth upcoming later on this month, is the uh, second reading of the proposed zone changes and At that meeting, the council has the right to vote these count- these zoning changes in to law. Um, So what's that
3: date again when they're going to vote? April
4: 17th is the second reading. They're required to do two readings. And after that second reading, which is a type of hearing to let people comment, they are allowed to vote these into law. There are five council members. So it only needs they only need to have three to get it passed. Um, But at the April 17th meeting, they could opt to not vote and to require further due diligence on their part or on the part of Nordic Aquafarms, But they could vote as early as April 17th, which is why this is so time-sensitive. So part of the information um, about this timeline shows that this is happening pretty quickly, and these are major zone changes, and this is a huge project, which Ellie will describe um, in a few minutes. It's also important for everyone to realize that this purchase and sale agreement um, has been brewing for months. And this, is per- this land was never on the market. This land is owned by the Water District. It always has been. They're not using it right now, but it was never publicly open for sale. Um, it was just, you know, Nordic Aqua Farms wanted it and the Water District. Uh, apparently, there was a lot of um, dealings behind closed doors before the public knew anything about this. So that's the that's the big concern here. Ellie, you're
3: nodding over there. Can yes. Jump in here.
5: Yeah. Um I think that this is really um a very big deal that we need to know a lot more than we know about right now. Um it is a, a very large project um being planned, Nordic Aqua Farms, in fact, um, has never done a product of a, a project of this scope. They do have uh, an aquafarm, land-based aquafarm, right now that um, they have built, but this particular project is 16 times larger in scope than any project that they've previously done. And in fact, it would be the largest land-based fish farm on the globe. So uh, the kinds of information that uh, is being shared, and not all the information is available to us, is based only on theoretical models and not on uh, actual scientific experience. So,
3: Would Belfast be larger than Bucksport?
5: Oh, grandly larger than Bucksport. Um, So I want to, you know, bring up some of the questions that have come to us as we have um, talked with many people. Uh, We've been tabling at the co-op and so forth. And interestingly, although the counselors uh, have said to us that they have been hearing from constituents, our experience uh, in talking to people at the co-op is that uh, most people know next to nothing about the fish farm. So um, it's really interesting. Um, Some of the questions that we have are um, about how many gallons of water does this actually take um, so in our studies uh, we looked at a very um, comprehensive study that was done by the international salmon farmers association and released in 2017 and uh, basically um, the belfast water district uh, does have an attractive proposal and it would be one that would seem to be uh, a good thing for the city in that the fish farm is guaranteeing to buy a minimum of 100 million, I mean, a maximum of 263 million gallons from the water district, uh, upper city. Reservoir and to get it to them in uh, a large flow per minute kind of a capacity. But in fact, it takes um, more than double that amount of water just to fill the tanks. And then on top of it, you have some depletion of water every single day. One to two percent of your water is depleted. Um, so the daily depletion of water in um, most uh, fish farm, land-based fish farm operations, according to this study, is between 11,000 and 22,000 gallons a day, which uh, translates into another 500 gallons, 500,000 gallons per month of water just in depletion. And then you have a certain uh, purging cycle that goes on in fish farming, in which you uh, empty and completely. Uh, Refill your tanks. And this is uh, a very huge amount of water. Um, Let's see. I won't spend too much time looking for it right this second. Um, Also, while there are not some of the uh, disease and uh, uh, lice parasite um, kinds of problems associated with ocean based fish farming, um, there are definitely um, incidences where pathogens have entered the tanks in land based. land-based, uh, uh, facilities. And, um, if this happens, it's necessary to completely empty and refill those tanks after scrubbing down all the filters and everything else like that. So one of our great concerns is, um, right now NAF is, uh, Uh, drilling test wells because, as I said, they're going to need more than twice as much water as the city is going to be providing for them. So they need to also drill wells. This property basically constitutes a 40-acre parcel uh, north of the little river In Belfast. It's uh, predominantly wooded at this time, and it would be predominantly cleared in order to um, build this large facility, 16 times bigger. Can you describe where that
3: is for people who don't live in Belfast? As you're going down Route 1, it's a little. Yes,
5: Yes. as you're coming uh, from the south into uh, Belfast and you cross the Belfast city li- uh, line, um, there's a very beautiful little bridge across the little river outlet into the ocean. And as you look left, you see the um, beautiful little river dam. It's kind of the gateway to Belfast um, for tourists. It's, it's a, a beautiful little spot. And um, this is the beginning, uh, the road access on Route 1 of this 48 acre property. It extends back and is bounded by the little river. And one of the things that we have um, concerns about is as uh, an aquifer is uh, has large quantities of water being pumped out of it, there is um, some effect on uh, the aquifer in terms of drawing it down. There's a displacement, a displacement effect, um, which is really of concern. What happens to people's wells? Um, Remember that this is currently not even a multi-use zoning. It's a residential zoning in this area. So uh, residential wells are going to be affected potentially by the drawing down of the aquifer. Also, as you draw fresh water out of an aquifer, the aquifer naturally um, has uh, empty space and it pulls uh, neighboring water into it in an effort to fill. There's kind of a, a pressure there, a negative pressure there. Um, no, um, yes, it's it's very possible that we could uh, watch the water levels in our little river and in the uh, upstream reservoir actually get drawn down, perhaps even get completely depleted by this kind of. Um, pumping of the groundwater out of the aquifer. Um, Also, because it is located close to the ocean, there is a possibility um, uh, saline-based water um, is particularly... um, susceptible to being drawn into empty space in an aquifer, so we could uh, experience a salinization of the water. Um, On top of that, there are many questions about how many gallons of wastewater are going to be discharged every day, daily, into the bay. Um, NAF has shared with us that their plan is to run a pipe out into the bay uh, uh, one and a half miles and to discharge in an area where the tide will, will carry that out. Um, I went on to the department of, uh, Environmental protection for the state of Maine. And uh, I found out that when you are pumping even filtered water out into the bay, and they do claim that 90 percent of the solids will be claimed, that you still have a high nitrogen water discharge coming out of that. And that high nitrogen can cause blooms of algae and so forth. It also uh, leads to declines of oxygen in bottom waters that can actually cause losses to the biological community out in the bay. Even shellfish, lobster kinds of uh, kills. And what's in the other 10 percent? The other 10 percent, well, of the solids. Right. Anything that they can't capture at the level of screens. Um, We also have questions. They have talked about uh, secondary products that are made from those solids that they screen at the facility. Uh, what is the volume of those solids? And uh, many people have said, how can you make uh, a salty uh, byproduct suitable for uh, fertilizer or feed, which is the uses that they have referenced? Um, and just how much are we talking about, you know, in terms of how is there enough market in Maine for that volume? Um, yeah, anything to add to that? <clears throat> well,
3: in general, this is most wild.
5: In general, I, I really think that
4: Nordic Aqua Farms stands to benefit way more than Belfast, Maine, stands to benefit in the long run. Um, additionally, I guess in summary, really, um, I think the site is inappropriate, uh, it's, and the project is too big for the site uh, I think it's going to strain the Belfast uh, infrastructure. And I think that the the rate at which this is developing and being pushed upon the citizens of Belfast is way too fast. Um, I really think that there should be more community engagement in this, uh, in this process and that there should be a task force that works with the city council. I do not think these five people, the five councilors, should be making this big decision on their own. And I once heard someone say um, – if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. And I think that that really holds true for this story. I don't think this is in Belfast's best interest at this level, at this site, at this time. So what can you do? Oh, let um, me.
3: Before you get oh, into that, let me just ask you real quickly um, – In your what can you do, is there anything that people who are not part of the Belfast community can do? If you're talking about Belfast city councilors, what influence do people in other parts of the Bay that may be impacted by this have?
4: Well, that's a really good question. Um, Just because you don't live in Belfast doesn't mean this isn't going to affect you. It's going to affect traffic, noise, pollution, and those go beyond city limits. So I would recommend that people contact Wayne Marshall. He's the city planner for the the city of Belfast. Uh, He is at wmarshall at cityofbelfast.org. Also... He's probably the best person for non residents to, to contact, but I also invite people to engage with the counselors Eric Sanders, Mike Hurley, John Harrison, Mary Mortier, and Neil Harkness. And you can also visit uh, our Facebook page that we, we have a group of about 50 people who are working on uh, getting more information to make sure that Belfast um, doesn't have growth beyond what's smart, and we are called Local Citizens for Smart Growth colon, Salmon Farm. Mm.
5: Yeah, I would like to add to that. Um, I I totally agree um, that this is moving very quickly. The public was brought into it um, very late in the process, uh, which is not a comfortable feeling for any of us. Um, Maine is one of the only states in New England that does not require uh, environmental impact studies with a, a project of this size and scope, even though Maine has... Uh, uh, done environmental impact studies in Searsport about the dredging of the harbor with the Sears Island issue and the tank placement and up in Kingfield for instance when a bottled water company was uh, uh, planning to pump out of their aquifer there were some limits put on that and some test wells and monitoring that happened to that. So uh, we do believe this needs more study and that there are uh, really some very um, important unanswered questions and Uh, And I would certainly not want to be a counselor and not have the kind of information that I needed to make such a, a huge decision as this zoning change.
3: All right. We'll put some of those links up along with the archives that show you get those to me. <clears throat> Excuse me, right after the show, we'll get them up on the archives of today's show. Again, the date for the next uh, council meeting where they may or may not vote on this? April 17th,
4: and there is always an open to the public time when people can speak and they will let everyone speak who wants to speak. Resident or not, or just Belfast? Resident, resident? or not, because once again, this is a regional issue, it's a world issue. Um, we need to be the change that we want to see, and I don't think this is the change we want.
3: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're just about out of time. Can we uh, get one or both of you back maybe for another show, longer look at this, and uh, some call-ins at mm-hmm. a future date?
5: We would love the opportunity. Thank you. Okay. That would be great. We, and it would be great to hear
4: from the public if they have time to call in next time.
3: Right, right. All right. So, unfortunately, we didn't get any calls today, but we will put, if you are, are listening to this and you still have questions, we'll put the links up for more information so you can get in touch. And uh, hopefully you can get your questions answered that way so a uh, quick last thought from either of you both of you i would say you if you're a resident of
4: belfast please and if you're opposed to this please write at least a three sentence letter to wayne marshall w marshall at city those
5: letters means those letters mean a lot and i would uh, I would want to say uh, northern uh, Norwegian aqua Farms has said that they want to put Belfast on the map. Uh, we are already on the map we 're known as a clean, beautiful, uh, sustainable, and um, conscious uh, community, and uh, we don 't want to be put on the map for uh, some unintended consequences.
3: All right, thank you both for being with me today. For this uh, sort of speed round session of information about this, uh, that was Ellie Daniels, and before that, uh, Joanne Mosswild. and we'll have a longer discussion of this on an upcoming edition of Main Currents. And if you listener uh, are involved in this issue either in Belfast or in Bucksport and might possibly like to be a guest on that, uh, please give me a uh, drop me an email. It's the best way to get in touch at news at W E R Shifting gears now to a piece of legislation that, if passed, would allow guns to be temporarily removed. From the possession of a person who was deemed to pose a risk to themselves or others here in Maine. A public hearing on the bill drew a crowd of people with strong opinions on each side of the issue to Augusta on Tuesday. Today on Maine Currents we listen in as LD 1884 is first introduced by Senator Mark Dion and then we'll hear some of the public testimony from both sides.
6: I'm here today to present LD 1884 an act to create a community protection order. I want to thank the committee in advance for the attention and work you will apply to this bill. Moving forward, the burden of policymaking will lie squarely on your collective shoulders. In that light, I offer you the wisdom of Dr. King, who cautioned us that there is no convenient season to declare what is right. It will be no less the case with the proposition that lies at the core of this initiative. The idea that there can be a failure in responsible gun ownership. Responsible gun owners will declare that legislative policy details matter. I agree with them. I'm also confident that responsible owners agree that the right to bear arms necessitates an obligation that rises above safe storage and careful handling of one's own firearms. Responsible gun ownership is also about making sure we keep guns out of unsafe hands. This bill addresses the issues of what should occur if one's capacity to safely discharge that responsibility is called into question. It is not about the gun, but the person who may choose to pick up that gun. A community protection order will authorize the surrender of a citizen's firearm to the police subsequent to the written order of a district court judge. The firearm will be taken for safekeeping by the police for a period of 21 days. At the conclusion of that three-week timeline, the court will hold a hearing to determine whether the order should be dissolved and the weapon returned to its owner, or if there continues to exist tangible evidence that would warrant the extension of the order for a period not to exceed six months. The judge, in issuing the surrender order, will have to be convinced that there are objective facts, evidence that represents something more than the mere opinion of well-intentioned persons that will allow her or him to conclude that the gun owner's behavior, left unchecked, presents an imminent threat of harm to either the individual or other community members. This proposal would provide family members and law enforcement officials with a judicial pathway to de-escalate the behavior of such an individual and its probable adverse outcome should they not intervene. In my three decades as a law enforcement officer, I have witnessed individuals who were clearly on a trajectory for self-destruction. And the lingering question following those contacts was whether someone else would be swallowed into that coming storm and pay a price that no one should. In these instances, my common sense clearly saw the possibility of tragedy, but I had no readily available tool to interrupt that cycle of increasingly risky behavior. Now some would say the blue blue paper process for involuntary psychiatric commitment provides just such a resource. The truth of the matter, it does not. I have wrestled with the legal and clinical mechanics underlying involuntary commitment, both as a sheriff and lawmaker, and little forward progress has come from it. There's an ongoing policy tension between medicine and public safety, and it lies in their respective understanding of what constitutes an imminent threat. Disordered, erratic, and impulsively threatening behaviors do not necessarily satisfy the threshold for a psychiatric commitment, but they nonetheless raise significant safety concerns for affected family members and the police. That risk to personal and community safety is significantly aggravated, if the person in question has ready access to a firearm. These factors prompt the need for a community protection order process. I recognize that some Second Amendment advocates will critique this initiative as a legislative overreach, a conscious attempt to trespass on Section 16 of the main Constitution's expression that the right to bear arms cannot be questioned. In response to that off-stated claim, the Maine Supreme Judicial Court has made the following conclusion of law in State v. Brown. And I quote that opinion. Once it is apparent, as common sense requires it to be, that amended Section 16 does not bar some reasonable regulation of the constitutional right to possess firearms the only remaining question becomes what are the outer bounds of reasonableness for the regulation of that non absolute right. The policy question that thus follows is whether the proposed community protection order presents the legislature with an opportunity to advance the public safety in a manner that is both reasonable and compatible with the principle of self-protection that underscores the rationale of our state's constitutional right to bear arms. I will humbly remind the committee that no one law can anticipate or prevent every and all circumstances where firearms are employed to achieve tragic ends. This reality qualifies every law that we pass. Each statute represents an attempt to control, manage, or respond, to conditions or circumstances that have occurred. And it is our best collective guess that the laws we pass will have an impact in lessening the chance of future unwarranted conduct from occurring. No law provides absolute protection, but that condition should not deter us from taking reasonable steps to address potential threats to our collective safety. Now, this bill has been characterized as a red flag statue. That label is appropriate if we consider that we often know when someone close to us is coming apart. In a way that causes us to worry that maybe this time it won't end well. Sometimes, for some of us, that uncomfortable concern grows into a palpable anxiety that our worst fears could become all too real as we bear witness to the evolving slow-motion wreck that is fast becoming the context of a loved one's life. Will this law prevent a mass shooting? I don't know. None of us do. But if we can see the red flags for what they are, then we may have a chance to interrupt and stop what none of us want to see happen. Can this order be brought to bear on the silent epidemic of firearm-involved suicide? I suspect that it could. For some, the psychological isolation of their lives sets up a cascade of emotional decisions that can often lead to the finality of suicide. Should we not have the option to separate them from their gun and remove the possibility of an impulsive, irrevocable, and fatal act by a family member. I would say yes, we should. I appreciate your attention and would welcome your questions. I'm sure there will be testimony to follow that will offer a diversity of suggestions, amendments, and outright rejections of this LD. Nonetheless, that conversation that you're about to have is important and necessary to your consideration of this proposal. I am, however, confident in the integrity of this committee and your ability to make a decision that is in the best interest of the people of May. Attached to my testimony to the committee is an addendum. And these are factors that some courts in some states have considered in drawing a conclusion surrounding the high risk that an individual poses. These include recent acts or threats of violence against self or others, a history of using violence against self or others, prior convictions for crimes of violence, domestic violence, stalking, or other relevant criminal history, evidence of drug or alcohol abuse, the existence or previous violations of protection orders, no contact orders, prior unlawful or reckless use of firearms, and the respondent's ownership access to or recent attempts to acquire firearms. In the bill that I submitted for your consideration as a committee, I did not outline the factors that a judge should consider. Because I don't think we can always anticipate what fact pattern alone would suffice. Everyone's a human being. The possibilities are endless. But there is a duty on the family and the police in securing such an order that they submit an affidavit and let the judge make a determination. But if the committee is inclined, that's why I attach the addendum. If they want to start having an objective index that would help inform the judiciary as it discharges its responsibility. I do not see this as a bill that will be applied if it becomes law as frequently as some might suspect. But what I do see that when the circumstances warrant it, it could be the most critical criminal justice decision made by a court acting in concert with citizens and the police it is intended to intervene and de-escalate and that is what i'm trying to accomplish here
7: senator kai representative moon and members of the judiciary committee my name is david trahan i'm the executive director of the sportsman's alliance of maine testifying in opposition to ld 1884 an act to create a community protection order to prevent high-risk individuals from possessing firearms. We are not opposed to the ideas presented in this bill, but have serious concerns with the process and timeline in which this bill is being considered, as well as our desire to have all stakeholders participating in this drafting. Whenever government government considers taking away civil rights or considering issues as complicated as this one that infringe on several constitutionally protected individual rights, the process should be deliberate, thoughtful, and take all the time necessary to get the job done right. This bill is not new to the legislature, but is new to this committee, and I would ask why. I am not implying that you do not have the capability to get it done, but unlike the criminal justice committee that heard this bill last year, and it at least have some experience with it, you must start from scratch to understand the complexities of issues like blue papers and white papers, constitutional rulings and civil civil rights issues, touching five different U.S. constitutional amendments. In addition, each and every section of this bill, if drafted improperly, could be subjected to a court challenge on many different levels. The policy proposed in this bill is to allow the government to confiscate someone's firearms, or better described as personal property by police officers on private property and without that person, have, person having been accused of committing a crime. Instead, they would lose their rights, excuse me, trying to rush because of the time, so I apologize, for um, having their firearms taken away for acting like they could commit a crime or were alleged to have said something disturbing. Ask yourself this simple question In that situation, how many civil rights were impacted? The same civil rights each and every one of you have sworn to protect when you were elected. Since this bill was allowed in legislative council, I have been called to review several potential amendments to this bill that try and resolve some of the issues and conflicts with the first, second, fourth, and 14th amendments to the US Constitution. Working a bill like this before the public hearing and with two two weeks left in the session, when legislators are already stressed, is irresponsible and bad public process. If the legislature wants to work on this policy in a manner that allows all stakeholders to be represented and produce a product that strikes a balance between preserving civil rights and protecting the public, we will work in good faith toward that goal. We recommend this committee take this legislation as well as another related bill that will come out very shortly and convert them into a committee bill. There are then two paths the bill could take. First, the committee could establish an unofficial group of stakeholders to begin meeting immediately with a short window of time from now until veto day after the session is done. That would buy an additional two weeks past session to try and get the job done right. A second option, and one we would prefer, is to form a blue-ribbon commission to work on this issue and report to the next legislature on a solution. In either case, it would be much better than passing something that legislators feel um, they need to do something.
1: Senator Keim and Representative Moonen and members of the Committee on Judiciary. Uh, I'm Chief Glenn Moser of the Ellsworth Police Department, and I'm here to speak today in support of uh, LD 1884 because I believe the situation that I'm going to describe uh, is something that could have been assisted, we in law enforcement could have been assisted by a, a, a law such as this. Uh, in February, we were contacted by the FBI and notified that there was an individual in our community who had made threats to uh, go to our high school and uh, commit a a mass shooting similar to what had transpired in Florida just a few days before. And uh, in our investigation, we were able to identify the individual. We were very familiar with the uh, 19-year-old. He was uh, somebody who we had arrested numerous times. Uh, We had uh, uh, covered his father's suicide two, uh, three years before. And uh, he, uh, he was involved in an assault in school, in the high school, as well as uh, had a history of um, drug and alcohol abuse. And so we quickly went to the individual's uh, residence. He lived at home with his mother. And we interviewed him and uh, were able to obtain a confession as to his admittance to making the post. He was uh, ultimately taken into custody and charged with terrorizing And for at least the time being, the situation and the threat to our school was was alleviated. We subsequently knew that there were firearms in the house. Uh, We interviewed the mother about the firearms, and her her simple word to us was that she had firearms and that uh, he didn't have access to them. When we inquired about where they were stored, they were kept in a locked closet in the residence. Um, We... uh, contacted our district attorney's office in an effort to get a search warrant to seize those weapons so that he wouldn't have access to them because we all knew he was going to be released at some point uh, we were told by the district attorney's office that the mother hadn't committed a crime so therefore we had no probable cause in order to se- seize the weapons um, it's my contention that we could have applied for this community protection order which would have given us the authority to to seize those weapons um, we were subsequently, Received additional information that he did, in fact, have access and occasionally had possession of the weapons, including the shotgun which uh, the, his father had used to commit suicide. And we were later able to obtain a search warrant, but when we went to the residence approximately three weeks later and executed the search warrant, the weapons were no longer in the residence. The mother had varying stories as to what happened to the weapons. But we're left uh, with a community who's uncertain and certainly a law enforcement um, community that's uncertain that when this individual is released back to, into public and to home that he's not going to have access to those weapons because we have no real no- knowledge as to where those weapons are.
3: You're listening to Maine Currents on WERUFM. This is some of the testimony on LD1884, an act to create a community protection order to allow courts to prevent high-risk individuals from protecting firearms. Uh, it was presented at a public hearing before the legislature's Judiciary Committee on Tuesday. Back to some of the testimony, both pro and con.
8: My name's David Walker. I'm a retired papermaker from Hartford, Maine. I'm speaking on behalf of the West Hap Hartford Rifle Association. My ex-brother-in-law hates guns. So he went after my sister with a knife. Ordered by the court to see a shrink. He never did, and this state didn't do a damn thing about it. So spare me the lectures that guns are evil. They're inanimate objects. People are dangerous but so are unchecked governments. <laughs> this is a quote from the Supreme Court ruling of Miranda versus Arizona, where rights secured by the Constitution are involved, there can be no legislation that would abrogate them. And since Article Six of the U.S. Constitution binds state officials to protect and defend it, that should be the end of this bill, period. Using the legal rationale of this bill, a mother could have her child taken away Solely based on a false accusation of abuse. But mothers have a presumption of innocence, and like it or not, so do gun owners. This bill is from the Wimpy Hamburger School of Jurisprudence, in that we'll gladly give you due process next month for the freedom we take from you today. This bill's sponsors deny it's unreasonable. Funny, it's always a political left to get to decide which infringements on our freedom are reasonable. If we're willing to sell due process and liberty's teeth so cheaply, why not also adopt mandatory DNA testing, compulsory testimony, warrantless searches, and detention without bail? Why not just tear up the Bill of Rights and enjoy the banana republic that's being pushed on us? Shamelessly exploiting the Parkland tragedy, the real purpose of this bill is to accustom gun owners to more government intrusion into their lives, to demonize firearms as the root cause of crime, and to stigmatize gun owners as criminal suspects with diluted constitutional rights. Benjamin Franklin said, Where freedom dwell, dwells, there lives my country. Rejecting this bill will ensure it will continue to live here in Maine our country. Thank you.
0: Senator Keim, Representative Moonen, and members of the Judiciary Committee. My name is Iris Luce. I'm a sophomore at Camden Hills Regional High School and a co-founder of the Maine Teen Advocacy Coalition. I'm here to support LD1884. I'm speaking today on behalf of my grandfather, a man I never met who died before I was born. While seeking to take his own life with a gun, he got into an altercation with a police officer and was fatally shot. He was mentally unstable. He never should have owned a gun. I spent much of my childhood racking my brain to understand why my mentally ill family member was allowed a gun in the first place. It all just seemed so unfair, unfair that the laws in our country allowed him to legally purchase and own a gun. Unfair that his life was lost when my mother was only 11 years old. Unfair that I was never able to meet him. It remains unfair to this day. What my grandfather needed was mental health counseling, not a gun. But I am not just here because of my grandfather's tragic story. I am here on behalf of the hundreds of thousands of lives lost unfairly because our country and our lawmakers are unwilling to adopt common sense gun laws. People who show warning signs of self-harm or of harming others should not be allowed a gun. My grandfather is just one example of the thousands of people whose lives are lost because they had access to a gun while they were in crisis. In Maine, the gun ownership rate is higher than the national average. And so is our suicide rate. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for individuals ages 15 to 34. Around half of these suicides are committed with guns. If these people were compelled to give up their guns temporarily, long enough to get some help, many of them could have survived. In fact, 90% of people who attempt suicide by other means survive. But with a gun, 90% of suicide attempts are fatal. Red flag laws have been proven to reduce rates of suicide. A 2017 study of Connecticut's red flag law estimated that the law has already averted at least 72 suicides. How many people like my grandfather could this bill save? LD 1884 is one necessary step in the right direction. Our society cannot continue to progress without enacting stricter gun regulations. As my friends and I can attest, it is all too easy to ignore such problems until one day they turn our lives inside out. And today, in the 21st century, lives of people like me and you are being affected by these issues far too often. We cannot continue to put off action on this issue until the next next mass shooting or the next suicide of a community member. We cannot continue to forget we cannot continue to give common-sense gun laws a low priority. Please vote yes on LD1884. Thank you. Uh,
9: Peter Meyer from Ellsworth, Maine. I will start by saying that LD1884 is a gun confiscation bill, plain and simple. LD1884 is a bill that was created to keep dangerous people from possessing firearms. However, it does nothing to prevent a determined individual from doing harm. It violates our Second Amendment rights by allowing for the confiscation of arms, confiscation that in our current pressure cooker-tempered society could potentially give rise to a tyrannical government. We have all had enough history lessons to know that a tyrannical government can perpetuate genocide. To highlight the current state of our own country, we can reference Dr. Gregory H. Stanton of GenocideWatch.net. Dr. Stanton has classified the 10 stages that lead to genocide. These stages are classification, symbolism, discrimination, dehumanization, organization, polarization, preparation, persecution, extermination, and denial. Dr. Stanton states that anything below a stage seven can still be stopped. Once it hits the seventh stage, genocide is inevitable. Dr. Stanton places the U.S. at the sixth stage, polarization. Currently, we are experiencing monumental tension. We are already more divided than at any other time in modern history. The Second Amendment protects all Americans from these horrors. My name is Peter Meyer. I am from Ellsworth, Maine. This is why, if given an unconstitutional, unlawful order, to turn in my arms that I will not comply. I will not end up like the 2 million people butchered under Pol Pot. I will not end up like the 17 million people systematically exterminated under Adolf Hitler. I will not end up like the 23 million people killed under Joseph Stalin. And I will not end up like the 78 million people extinguished under Chairman Mao. LD 1884 must not pass.
2: Uh, My name is Omar Andrews um, from Cape Elizabeth. I'd like to thank you for um, listening to me speak here today. Um, So I'm in support of 1884. Um, I'm the president of the Student Veterans Organization at the University of Southern Maine. I was a Marine Corps infantry from 2010 to 2016. Uh, After getting out in 2016, it was in the fall. It was in October. uh, I got a call. And uh, one of the Marines uh, that had turned up under me, he had died by suicide. <clears throat> Since then, um, I'd made it part of like a mission trying to um, make sure that doesn't happen. It's, um, it's hard to figure out why those things happen. and, and, and so trying to get, uh, get ahead of it is, is pretty important. So it's pretty, like, pretty well known that 20 veterans a day um, will die by suicide. And uh, what people, most people, don't know is that Maine actually skews that favor um, to the high end. So, uh, and I think where this bill can help in places, I'm going to tell you two more stories. Um, about a few months ago, I got a buddy call me, tell me, he tells me in his bad way. This is a combat veteran; he's been there, done that. Um, and he said that he was just uh, just got done tasting uh, his six hour, and what made him stop pull the trigger was his. Uh, his one-year-old daughter started crying at night, um, you know, right before. Um, another time I had a buddy, he reached out. It was like kind of on a group text, and he said, uh, I got some bad thoughts going on, and uh, that was it, you know, dot, 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 trails off. Uh, everyone starts calling him, uh, Start calling him, other people we know. Um, I ended up sending him a text. I said, I'm, I'm calling the police in five minutes. You've got five minutes till right now. And he ends up calling me back. In four, four minutes and about thirty something seconds, he ends up calling me back. Um, that's that's what this is for, for me. That's what you are are doing is helping, helping me help my brothers and sisters. Um, because twenty a day is too much in a year. I hope that, to, 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 that it's nineteen, but but really, if, if it's nineteen, it's still going to be heartbreaking. Um, so. Um, yeah, just this, obviously this isn't going to solve everything, but how I see this actually helping the veterans issue is that, for one step, it, it's on me. It's on myself, other veterans, to reach out and make sure that we're taking care of our own. Um, step two, I mean, the VA here in Maine, the, 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 the Bureau of Veterans Services, under, um, it, it, it's, it's actually fantastic. Um, so they do a lot to help with veterans. Um, and this mental health issue, that's come up a lot. Um, but the third thing is the community is getting get, getting involved um, and that's where I see this, this bill really helping is, is the community being able to actually do something um, to make sure that a veteran in a tough time can get through it. So, thank you.
10: Uh, my name is Nancy Caldwell. I am from Surrey. I'm here to testify in opposition <coughs> to LD 1884. In 1778, the Constitution was ratified by the states. Fresh in their minds was the memory of the British violation of their civil rights. They demanded a Bill of Rights that would protect individual citizens' liberties. And just a mere 241 years later, you are willing to toss that aside. LD 1884 violates our rights. Maine does not have a gun problem. We have a drug problem. The people who have written this bill are the same people that the Second Amendment was written to protect me from. In today's world, If you say anything that the left deems wrong, you are labeled racist, xenophobe, and whatever new catchphrase they come up with. What is to prevent them from accusing you of being a dangerous person because they deem what you say is dangerous simply because they disagree? How are we to judge, trust judges that now judge on feelings and not on law? This bill makes you guilty until proven innocent, quite different than innocent until proven guilty. Where is our right to due process when law enforcement shows up at our door to confiscate our guns? What is to stop law enforcement from claiming that the guns remain unclaimed, therefore they were destroyed? Are we to believe that certain guns won't be accidentally damaged? If safety is truly the issue, here are two ideas. Stop schools from being gun free zones. Start enforcing the laws already on the books. Ask any gun dealer how much follow up there is from law enforcement after a background check is flagged. They will tell you zero. The very first line of defense, and it is a failure. Every year gun owners right to bear arms is threatened every election year they go after hunters with a form of gun control buried in the bill the irony is not lost on the fact that our government sends guns guns that are illegal to american citizens to citizens of other countries so they can protect themselves it is time to punish the guilty it is time to punish not the gun but the person behind the gun It is time to hold accountable the agencies who have failed to do their jobs. Maine's own constitution reads, Every citizen has a right to keep and bear arms, and this right shall never be questioned. My uncle did not give his life in Korea so you could desecrate the constitution. My son did not serve eight years. My daughter does not continue to serve so you can desecrate the constitution. You took an oath to protect and uphold the Constitution. For too many years, the gun owners of America have been tolerant. Well, this year is different. This year, the bear has been poked one too many times. This year, we say enough. We will no longer stand by while you violate the rights of lawful gun owners.
11: Senator Kame, Representative Mooden, and the members of the Judiciary Committee. My name is Phoebe Walsh, and I am a sophomore at Camden Hills Regional High School, and a co-founder of the Maine Teen Advocacy Coalition. I am here today to voice my support for LD1884. (sighs) Sorry. Two years ago, I was in a ski accident where I almost died. I suffered a head injury resulting in a diagnosis of severe concussive disorder and PTSD. It didn't hurt almost dying. There's this sensation of divide your body separates from your mind and you can watch it happening as if you're on the sidelines you feel your body breaking your mind falling apart inside your skull your neck bending too far too fast but you you aren't really there you are in the somewhere else they talk about in synagogue or late night sleepovers or philosophy lectures it doesn't hurt in the somewhere else they're right you know the philosophers and the people of, people of faith dying is a bright light and it is beautiful and it is tranquil Someone does reach out their hand, and you do reach out to take it because you are too tired to stay. Those said death was peaceful. They just never explained what it feels like to survive. See, you don't get the luxury of consciously deciding to live. When you leave the somewhere else, there's no peaceful transition. You're torn, and suddenly all the pain hits you like a sledgehammer, and you're lying on the snow covered in blood, and you can't see quite right. Something's wrong. Your mind is all wrong. They don't tell you what that fear feels like, don't tell you how hard you will try to get back to the somewhere else. Because all those nights spent screaming yourself to sleep, all the pain caused by a broken body and a shifted brain, it all hurts just a little too much. So you pull out the pills and you put them back. You stand on the window ledge and you crawl back in. You place a knife on your wrist and you put it back on the table. Then you search for a gun. You look online, you consider gun-toting friends and neighbors you mull over everything anything to not hurt anymore because nothing is as final as a gun but i couldn't find a gun i'm a ski teacher now i started my own newspaper club and co-founded a teen advocacy group i learned how to figure skate with my sister and i sail on the sailing team my friends and my friends and i (laughs) were here and we're changing the world um but had i pulled the trigger All I would be is another tally in a gun violence statistic. I would be just one of the 21,000 Americans who kill themselves with guns each year. Just one of the 500 American children who kill kill themselves with guns each year. I was a red flag. And had
12: I pulled the trigger, I wouldn't be alive to tell you to pass this bill. Thank you. Senator Keim, Representative Moonen, and distinguished members of the Joint Standing Committee on Judiciary. My name is Maya Egan, and I'm a student at Freeport High School. I'm testifying on behalf of myself as well as my fellow students, Lucy Wing, Raya Fitzpatrick, and Sadie Southall. I'm here to testify in favor of LD 1884. I have grown up in a time where school shootings don't come as a surprise anymore. On February 14th, I was driving home from school and heard of the reporter on NPR announcing that another shooting had taken place at a school in my country where kids my age had been killed. I was horrified to hear of the tragedy, but there was no disbelief in my mind. I knew this news story all too well. Gun violence continues to be a pressing issue for me and for thousands of other teenagers. L.D. 1884 is a step in the right direction to put an end to the unnecessary tragedies that occur over and over again in our country. I am proud to see the legislature taking action on gun control. It is time that, our, that the government step up instead of idly standing by while students are killed in their classrooms. The steps proposed in L.D. 1884 are good ones. Ensuring that people who are a danger to themselves or others don't have access to firearms is common sense. But these steps are just that, steps. By passing this act, Maine would be making a positive change to the safety of its citizens, but we cannot stop here. We cannot stop until students are not afraid to go to school every morning. We cannot stop until the threat of gun violence isn't on their minds while taking a history exam. We cannot stop until that news story of children dying in schools ceases to be a common occurrence. We must continue to push for the common sense gun control bills. Begin this process today by voting to pass LD 1884. Thank you for your time and consideration of this act.
3: That was some of the testimony on LD1884, an act to create a community protection order to allow courts to prevent high-risk individuals from possessing firearms, which was presented at a public hearing before the legislature's Judiciary Committee. On Tuesday, it has yet to go for a work session, so there's still time to comment. If you're interested, you can contact your legislatures. You can find their contact information at legislature.main.gov. You've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. We're on now at a new time here on the first Thursday of every month from 10 to 11 o'clock. You may be used to hearing us on Tuesday afternoons at 4. I'd like to thank John Greenman for engineering today's program. You can reach us at news at If you heard the first segment on the salmon aquaculture and you would like to be considered to be a guest on an upcoming program about that, you can contact us with that suggestion at news at weru.org stay tuned mark dyer is in the house coming up with on the wing right after this here on community radio station weru fm 89.9 blue hill 99.9 bangor and streaming online at weru.org
11: Oh.